0: Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington
2: Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah.
1: Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman
2: from The Washington Post.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 6th. Today, a push to create a new genderless form of Spanish. And waiting for asylum on the southern border.
2: So, Natalia Mira, she was 17 years old at the time. She's a high school student in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And she was demonstrating in front of her high school uh, in favor of a bill that was set to potentially legalize
3: abortion in Argentina. So there
2: is this. Conservative journalist named Eduardo Feynman, who starts interviewing her and asking her about this abortion protest, and immediately starts jumping in and correcting her use of gender neutral Spanish.
3: Son los diputados, que incluye diputados y diputadas. Los diputados.
2: Saying. It's uh, diputados instead of diputadas, which is uh, the word for lawmakers that she had said in a gender-neutral form. The mine is castellano. It's eh,
3: including no tanto generos. The Mujer y varón el, como no sé los géneros tuyo. que no se interpelan por ninguno de los. A mí en el colegio me
1: enseñaron a hablar en castellano, Natalia, y es los diputados y las diputadas en castellano es así.
2: She started saying that I respect your way of speaking. You should respect mine. He says, my way is Spanish. I don't know what yours is. I don't know what they're teaching you in school these days. And suddenly it became a conversation less about abortion and more about the way she was speaking Spanish.
1: Samantha Schmidt writes about gender and family issues for The Post.
2: So this was really the first time that any Major mainstream newspapers and networks in Argentina had given coverage to this gender neutral form of Spanish. It was a totally new thing to most people in Argentina, and the the reactions were extremely strong. You know, people were pretty outraged by it because it just sounds entirely wrong to any Spanish speaker. And suddenly she became this symbol of this entire movement of young feminists, especially feminist women, a lot of high schoolers and college students that were kind of at the center of the feminist feminist movement in Argentina and she started getting attacked by people not only in the news but in her own communities one of her former teachers even put a meme on his facebook calling her a feminazi and making a joke about her use of this gender neutral form of spanish and it was it was extremely controversial and it really started this huge debate about how we speak spanish in argentina
1: so, tell me more about the rise of gender neutral Spanish and how it's become more of like a, a political rallying cry.
2: So that was in June two thousand eighteen when that video went viral, and it's been incredible to watch uh, from afar how much this has entered the mainstream in the last year and a half. It has been, you know, at the center of rallies and protests and feminist movement. <laughs> but it's also reached universities. We've seen it used even by the soon-to-be president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez, has used it in speeches talking to young people. So
3: it's, you know, in
2: a very short amount of time reached a level of, of acceptance and widespread attention that I have found really remarkable.
1: So when we talk about gender-neutral
2: Spanish, like, What is what is that all about? So unlike in English, every noun in Spanish has a gender, either masculine or feminine. It's one of many languages around the world that is considered grammatically gendered. And it makes it extremely difficult to acknowledge non-binary identities, people who don't identify as male or female. Even when you are referring to a group of people, for example, and there are both men and women, the plural form defaults to masculine. There could be 99 women in a room and one man, and you have to refer to them as mis compañeros, my classmates, instead of mis compañeras.
1: I feel like I remember learning that in Spanish class in seventh grade and being kind of confused and also a little bit horrified when you think about plural words in Spanish that, like, if you're in this room full of women, if there's one dude in the room, that it completely changes the gender of the word because that dude and his male identity is, like, more important than the zillions of other women in the room who have a female identity.
2: Right. And there's been... Advocates for a long time, particularly in feminist movements, who have pushed back against this and said that this is part of a machista, sexist society, that this language is inherently gendered. And so, you know, how can we how can we break with the patriarchy if we can't break with it in the way that we speak? And so there's been lots of efforts to do that, for one, by actually using both the masculine and the feminine to try to, you know, make sure that the feminine is visible But now there are some young people who are saying that that's not enough. We have to go further than that and and break entirely with this binary system of the language.
1: But I think a lot of people will look at this and say – You know, like, this is just sort of one of those arbitrary rules of language, and it is what it is. And there are a lot of words in Spanish that are gendered, that are male or female, that have nothing to do with gender, and it just happens to be the way that you say the word. So for the people who are arguing that this is important, why do they think that it matters so much to be more
2: thoughtful about the gender of words? There's some really fascinating research that shows that the way we speak can, in fact, shape the way that we think. This one cognitive scientist, Lyra Borditsky has studied this, and particularly when it comes to languages like Spanish and German that are grammatically gendered. And she'll take a word like bridge, for example, which... in German is feminine, but in Spanish is masculine. And in experiments, she found that German speakers are actually more likely to describe a bridge with stereotypically feminine qualities, such as beautiful or elegant, while Spanish speakers are more likely to describe it with stereotypically masculine qualities, like strong or towering. And there's even some studies that show that there are some real implications in society. For example, some researchers at the World Bank earlier this year released a report showing that grammatical gender in language has a negative causal impact on female labor force participation, for example. And there's also been another study in Sweden showing that when they incorporated the gender-neutral pronoun uh, hen- to the dictionary in Sweden back in 2015, it actually led to more favorable attitudes towards women and towards the LGBTQ community. So there's a lot of people who point to these studies and say, look, like the way that we speak does actually affect the way we treat one another. And so it matters. So
1: you went to Argentina to talk to some of these student activists about what they're doing and what they're trying to change. How are they bringing gender-neutral language into
2: their life? So it's really amazing to see how natural it is for so many of them. Uh, For example, I was there my second night in Buenos Aires. I went to a student government rally outside of this really well-known high school in Buenos Aires called the Carlos Pellegrini School. And they were outside till like four in the morning uh, chanting and cheering as they were waiting to find out who was going to be the student body president elected for the next year. all of the chants they were singing had gender-neutral pronouns and gender-neutral words. And so it was just totally natural for them to use this as part of their activism and to try to include all of the people in their class. And, you know, I was following Natalia Mira, who's really kind of the symbol of this movement, since she really helped bring it to mainstream audiences across the country.
3: Algunes me decían, tipo, tal vez no es tan estratégico que hables en lenguaje inclusivo cuando el, el, lo central es otra cosa. Y, y para mí seguía siendo importante que, que mostremos cómo hablamos, porque también eh, cuando, cuando uno habla de una lucha o una eh, causa feminista, también es importante ponerlo en las palabras correctas. Porque si no, lo que no... It
2: comes out so naturally for her that she even uses it with taxi drivers, with total strangers. Uh, One day I heard her using it just while singing to herself in the kitchen while heating up some water. And so you can tell that this is just so uh, normal for her now because she decided when she first started hearing about this version of gender-neutral Spanish, that the only way that she was going to really be able to internalize it was if she were to use it all the time, everywhere. And not just when someone's listening, not just when she's leading a group in, in a protest or a rally, but if it's a part of her everyday life. And some of her classmates have really started following suit.
1: So I'm thinking of a little bit of the English corollary here where, you know, recently there has been a bigger push toward using the singular they and bringing that into the way that we talk about people who are non-binary or don't identify as one gender and how much pushback that has gotten from people who are like, no, they can never refer to one person. And so I can imagine that there are probably the equivalent of Spanish-speaking purists who say, this is not how we use our language.
2: Yeah. I mean, imagine the kind of pushback we've gotten in the U.S. from just changing one pronoun. Imagine when you have to change the entire grammar of a language, and especially a language like Spanish that is very closely tied to this Authority called the Real Academia, the Royal Spanish Academy. And the RAE, as they call it, the Royal Spanish Academy, has said very blatantly that they do not accept this form of gender neutral Spanish, that this is unnecessary, it's artificial, that the grammar of Spanish already includes both male and female, that words like todos, for example, are inclusive, and that adding this new gender neutral form is unnecessary. And you hear this echoed in a lot of people uh, across, you know, even in Buenos Aires, where this has actually reached a certain level of acceptance, it is still extremely controversial. And you talk to people who say that this is something that is being imposed on them by these like young, radical leftist activists, and they see it as really disrupting the language and uh, something that is so pure to their culture and identity as Spanish speakers. You know, I talked to a few experts on this who've studied change in language over time, and they'll say that adding a word to a dictionary, for example, is not that difficult. Words evolve all the time, and and new language emerges all the time, but changing the grammar, changing the rules of the language is very difficult and takes generations. So there's a lot of doubt about whether this will actually take off.
1: But I, I think that when you look at the history of languages, no language is static over over time, and they're always changing. And even if there's pushback against it, it does feel like, of course, the Spanish of now sounds different than the Spanish from the times of, like, Don Quixote. And then, of course, the Spanish of the future will sound different than the Spanish of now.
2: Definitely. And ultimately, who owns the language? The, the speakers, right? And that's what so many of these young people say, is that they are the owners of this language, and they want to speak in a way that will include everyone and make sure that everyone is seen and heard. And so what's stopping them? And you hear from a lot of people who say, does it matter what the authority on language says? I mean, ultimately, you can speak however you want.
1: Samantha Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post.
0: Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. On July 25th, 2019, during a phone call with a foreign leader, Trump asked for a favor to investigate a political rival. Trump's call set off a cascade of events leading to the current impeachment proceedings. In Season 2, The Asset shows how all roads lead to Russia and dissects how Trump tried to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020 download the asset today
1: And now one more thing from the US Mexico
4: border I'm here in in Matamoros Mexico just across the border from Brownsville Texas where this huge encampment has emerged of migrants waiting under MPP or the migrant protection protocols which is a year old policy under the Trump administration that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are sort of resolved or are not resolved. And there are now around 2,000 people here living just at the very edge of northern Mexico on the Rio Grande, really in some of the worst conditions really of any refugee camp I've, I've ever seen. My name is Kevin Seif, I'm the Mexico bureau chief for the Washington Post. I wanted to see the kinds of conditions that people were living in, in this camp. Interestingly, there's no UN presence there, there's really no U.S. funding for the camp, so very little assistance of any kind, very little humanitarian attention. There are three or maybe four portable toilets, so a lot of people are just going to the bathroom outside in the bushes. People are bathing in the Rio Grande. And that river is far from clean. Um, while people were bathing or washing their clothes or dishes, sometimes they see crazy things happen. Like once um, a decapitated man's body washed ashore, another time a huge dead cow. So, I mean, it's sort of just a horrific place. And, you know, when you're, when you're on the river with people, as I was sort of watching them, you see the Border Patrol come by in these speed boats and just create these huge waves in the Rio Grande. Over the last few weeks, I think the, the desperation in the camp has really mounted. The weather in South Texas can be very extreme. And a few weeks ago, the temperature just sank overnight to the 30s. And people are just sleeping outside, basically, with their very small children, some babies. And the the children especially started getting very sick. Can you tell me your name?
1: Yeah, my name's Megan Algio.
4: And what's your position? I'm, I'm an MD. Um, you were here when it got really cold, right?
1: Yeah.
4: How much of an impact did that have on the health of children? I mean, they're just sort of exposed.
1: To oh, a lot, elements. a lot. Um, we we crossed a sick child that night. We were maybe on the bridge for, for three or four hours.
0: Sick um, with what, do you know?
1: At the time, I was concerned uh, for a bunch of possibilities, none of which I was able to adequately investigate. I was concerned for infection, kidney problems, um, or even just exposure. Yeah, um, but no, the, I mean, the, the, the weather we had last week really impacted the kids a lot because, you know, we weren't totally prepared for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't. I've been pretty close. Uh-huh. For that.
4: And a lot of parents, not knowing how long this cold front would last, not knowing what would come next, decided that for their own children's well-being, they need to send their kids across the border alone. They worried the kids were going to get worse. And so, one by one, they sort of walked their kids to the International Bridge. And in some cases, the very small children really didn't want to. Um, a few parents told me that. Their kids really abs- sort of begged them not to go, but they felt like, the parents felt like they had no choice, that sending them across to the U.S. was was really the best, the best option. And the reason for this is because... The U.S. is much more willing to accept what they call unaccompanied minors. And so when a child arrives at the border alone, the U.S. takes that child in. Eventually, that child ends up at a government-run shelter and then maybe with relatives um, while they await their asylum hearing. I talked to one father who told me about the process of sending his his daughter alone. She was getting sick, and he, he told me a bit about what that felt like to send her across. And then his relatives back in his home country, she had, through them, left a message for him. And since then, he's just been playing it over and over again. It's a very short message, but it's sort of the only thing he's heard from his daughter. The camp in Matamoros is is the clearest illustration of how unprepared both Mexico and the U.S. were for the implementation of MPP. There was never any plan for where those people would stay or how they would eat. The winter is coming in South Texas. So what will happen to to these families, you know, as the months go by?
1: Kevin Seif is the Mexico bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Gillette. Our producers are Alexis Dio, Rina Flores, Lena Mohamed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Svarnovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I am Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In season two, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today.